We are in week two of our series on the parables that we're calling Beyond the Shadow. If you missed week one, never fear, it's not too late to catch up. You can always catch up to your shadow, haha. We have an introductory video that we showed last week. If you've seen it already, then this will refresh your memory. If you're here with us for the first time, then allow it to, to introduce our message this morning as we talk about the parables of Jesus under the title, Beyond the Shadow. Let's watch. Remember when you discovered your own shadow for the very first time? Oh, Mommy, Daddy, what is that? And it was fascinating. You'd lift your arm up and your shadow would too. Can you believe it? And then you and your friends would try and run faster than your shadow could run, right? But that didn't work, and, and neither did jumping up and down to somehow shake that thing loose. Your shadow was your shadow, and it did what you did when you did, and that was that. You can tell a lot about someone or something by looking at their shadow. A lot, but certainly not everything. If you know who I am, then you might even recognize me by my shadow. But you can't tell the color of my eyes or the expression on my face. You can tell some things about me, but certainly not every detail. Parables are a lot like shadows. Shadows of God and what life is like in God's kingdom. Shadows of the spiritual realm being cast into real, everyday life. Like a shadow, a, a parable shows that God is real. He is there, casting a shadow. And we can tell a lot about God in the spiritual realm by looking at their shadows. Not everything, but a lot. In the Gospels, Jesus loves to use parables to teach about the kingdom of God. In the creative genius of his imagination, the listener catches glimpses of the divine shadowy glimpses, inexact looks, but in the shadow of the parables, one nevertheless discovers something of the truth casting the shadow. So when we study the parables of Jesus, we are studying shadows, shadows of God in his kingdom or reign. And we learn more about God in the spiritual realm through the shadows we are studying. Jesus, in this way, invites us beyond the shadow of the parable, beyond the shadow to God himself, to the reality of heaven, to the reality of the divine and the spiritual realm, and to the reality right now, here on earth, of life in Christ. At the end of C.S. Lewis's The Last Battle, the children are, are wondering what happened to them and where they are, and Aslan tells the children, you are all dead, as you used to call it in the Shadowlands. The idea being that our world and Narnia are only reflections, shadows of Aslan's kingdom. And so too with parables. They are but shadows of the kingdom of God and its king. So let's take a journey from the mere shadowlands of our world and into the kingdom of God itself, using the parables of Jesus as our guide to living beyond the shadow.
Okay, I gotta say, doesn't John Burns do a great job with these videos? Amen. And then in the same breath, I need to tell you, no, he's not available to hire privately for all of your video needs. Okay? You leave my technician alone. No, I'm just kidding. Parables, um, parables are indeed like shadows. And I uh, emphasized it last week. I emphasized it this week. I'll probably continue to emphasize it, although I'll shorten it as we go. But I'm emphasizing it because if we remember one thing, about interpreting parables, the one thing I hope we all remember is to let them be shadows. Do not over-allegorize. Parables are certainly allegories, illustrations, but they only illustrate so far as they intend, which of course makes the $64 million question, right? Well, what do they intend and what do they not intend to illustrate? And that's where context becomes a polar star of interpretation, both first century Jewish context, which is the material in the story and when they were first told, and the context of Scripture. Where and how did those gospel writers put the parable where they put it? What happens before and after? Together with the context of all the Bible, Genesis through Revelation, those contexts need to line up in one accord with any conclusions of what the parable is trying to illustrate, what it's trying to teach and reveal about God and his kingdom. If you were here last week, you remember that uh, a parable will gladly and will do without conscience, it will gladly and without conscience step on theological toes if the theology it's stepping on isn't what the parable is trying to say. A parable is driving towards something, one or maybe a few big ideas, and it's not about to let theology it isn't focused on to get in its way. In fact, it will often purposefully tread on theology if the shock of that helps make what the parable wants to say even more emphatic and dramatic. And again, Context is critical in figuring out what a parable intends versus what it's simply using to help us get to see, hear, and respond to what it intends. One scholar says it this way, a parable is a partial picture of reality. It holds up part of reality to make a specific point or points, sometimes in extreme fashion. And parables must be allowed to mirror that portion of reality they wish and not forced to picture a systematic theology or a chronology in toto. Not Dorothy's toto, but a different total. So, so parables are like shadows. We can tell a lot from a shadow. They're very valuable, but we make a mistake when we try and read too much into the shadow or force it to say something that goes, you know what, that's not necessarily there. Second, Keep looking with me, would you, for Jesus' sense of humor in his parables. I, I, I think it's a shame that I go through seminary training, maybe you have too, or whether you study, etc. There are not a whole lot of books that emphasize and show and dwell on Jesus' sense of humor. And it's a shame because his sense of humor is delightful 
It's all over the Gospels. It adds in such a huge way to the effectiveness of his stories. He sets people up all the time with a giggle or a laugh or a smile. And in the joy of that moment, like any good teacher tries to do, helps pave the way and open hearts with laughter even for his message. So keep looking for that. We'll see Jesus' humor sparkle again um, as he sets up the story we're looking at this morning. Go ahead and laugh if you think that maybe this is, well, not right now, George. But go go, go. You can laugh right now if you want to. Let's practice. Let's everybody laugh. Go ahead. Well, not, not, not a lame Ryan Long laugh. You know, a, a big... You know. Go ahead and laugh if you think there's a... Por- ah, that could be funny in first century um, Jewishness. We'll see. Um, with those things in mind, shadows and context and even Jesus' sense of humor, please turn in your Bibles, if you have them, to Luke chapter 14. Luke 14, and you'll find in that chapter what the NIV calls the parable of the great banquet. Um, what I also like to call the parable of the urgent invitation. And we'll dive right into the parable this morning and we'll pause here or there along the way as uh, I've done last week and uh, intend to do throughout the series. I'm reading beginning at verse 15. Luke 14, beginning at verse 15. When one of those at the table with him and the hymn is Jesus, when one of those at the table with him heard this, some background is in order here right off the bat, Jesus is eating at the house of a prominent Pharisee, probably in a small village in Galilee, and he's on his way to Jerusalem for the last time a few weeks from now, maybe a few months depending on timing, but he's on his way to Jerusalem now for the last time to die. He's on his way to the cross, and he stops and uh, has a meal at a prominent Pharisee's house. Incidentally, a a good reminder here that Pharisees in the Bible are not necessarily negative. Some were, some were not. For Jesus to accept an invitation to eat in a Pharisee's home brought that Pharisee great honor. And Jesus in his culture, as we'll see in a minute, was certainly honored to accept the invitation and attend. In Lucan context, at the very end of the previous chapter, Luke 13, Luke tells us that certain Pharisees warned Jesus to watch out for Herod who wanted to kill him. And right after that, Luke says, and now Jesus is accepted an invitation to eat in a prominent Pharisee's home. When one of those at the table with him heard this... The this that's overheard, my goodness, we'll never get through the parable at this rate, but don't worry, we'll get through it. The this that has been overheard is Jesus has just explained to those gathered around the dinner table how how people who invite beggars who cannot repay them to banquets, how those people who do such inviting will be repaid, will be blessed at the resurrection of the righteous. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the man who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. And I would imagine they all said, Amen. Because whoever that guy is who pronounced that blessing, he gets a gold star. Because he, like most Jews, is already familiar 
with that picture, that idea of a great banquet that will occur at the resurrection. Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. It's difficult for us in 21st century America to emphasize enough what a banquet or feast meant in first century Jewish culture. I'm going to try in summary. These things were lavish, extravagant events involving extensive preparation. As in the parable, there were typically two invitations. The first one to secure people's acceptance and the second one then to announce, okay, come and get it, it's ready. Now that fact alone sets up the next section in the parable. The people have already accepted the invitation to come. And culturally, in accepting that invitation, culturally, they were obligated to attend. The honor or shame involved in honoring your acceptance of of an invitation. The honor or shame of the host that you would come to the banquet he's preparing depended on them attending Honor and shame, a big first century theme in social and family systems. Attending these parties, crucial even to your standing in society and relationships with others in your village. One historian even writes, these banquets and meals were were even a means of organizing society. Very intricate systems and attention giving to seating arrangements, for example. Really reclining relationships, I guess, since they would recline while they ate. We'll look at those seating arrangements um, sometime uh, when we study and celebrate the Lord's Supper. Really adds to the story when you consider where Jesus and the various disciples in that story were sitting. But people were eager to attend these parties. Couldn't wait. I mean, even even as the smell of roasting meat wafted through the village as the meal was prepared, because that's what smells do, right? They waft. (laughs) Typical musicians would be employed, and they would be uh, on hand to play for the guests. These parties were big village community events, a big deal, cornerstones even of Jewish society. It's no wonder that eating and meals are major themes in Luke's gospel. Have you ever noticed, virtually every chapter in Luke, virtually every chapter has something relevant to the subject of eating and meals. Have you ever noticed that? The theme of this parable even is foreshadowed way back in Luke chapter 1, in Mary's song, verse 53, where she sings of God. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. No one would avoid these great feasts. It was unthinkable. You just wouldn't not go. They were integral in the lives of first century people. And that makes the next line in the parable a complete and utter full stop shock to Jesus' audience that that day. He said, 
but they all alike began to make excuses. Wait. We're sitting there that day. What? There they all sat as Jesus told his parable. And when he said that, I imagined them stopping whatever they were doing. Maybe they had looked down to dip their bread. Maybe they had reached for the glass and was on the way to their mouth. But when he said, but they all began to make excuses, I bet they... What? Did he just say that they, that they made excuses? No way. That doesn't happen. You know, the sky isn't green. It's blue. No way. How rude. How horrible for the honor of the host that these people would make excuses in accepting, having accepted his gracious invitation that kind of dishonor or shame was unthinkable in the first century. And they all alike, all of them, did he say all of them? Not just one crazy guy, but all of them began to make excuses? What is going on? See, I've heard about this rabbi and his amazing stories. There's something coming here. You know, my brother Jacob is right. These stories are just the best. What's he up to with this one? They all made excuses. And Jesus continues. The first said, I have just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. A few people laughed. Okay, good. I think the room in that frozen moment when Jesus threw that lame excuse out there, I think they went... And they burst out laughing. Maybe right in the middle of their being incredulous, Jesus sets them up to think, what? Then he delivers the punchline. I've just bought a field and must go see it. Who buys a field without first going to see it? They didn't have the internet where you could click on the property you're going to buy and see it later. The man accepts the obligation, accepts the invitation, obligates himself to come to the feast, And then buys a field that he's never seen. Who does that? And even if he's already seen it, a minority of scholars question whether it's uh, the nuance there is a first-time sight. But even if he's already seen it, why on earth would he have to see it again at the precise moment of this banquet that everyone wants to attend? Is this field going somewhere? It's lame. Must go and see his field. What is going? Is it, is it going somewhere that he can't see it later? <laughs> right. That just doesn't happen. Percolates through Jesus' dinner audience that day. Jesus continues. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. And again, everyone <laughs> laughed. This is farmer humor. Okay, not many farmers left probably in here this morning. Um, But you don't need a farmer to appreciate that. No farmer could even fathom uh, buying one pair of oxen, let alone the investment to buy five pairs, without testing them first. Of course you would do this before your purchase given the needs of your field. Lame. And the atmosphere surely now buzzing around the table in the prominent Pharisee's home when listening to this amazing rabbi tell a story. It's got to be, who are these people making excuses? These people are crazy. 
I bet the Romans. I don't know. Where's the story going? No one reneges on an invitation to such a banquet. No one. How ridiculous. They must be crazy. Then, even while they're still giggling, and, and by the way, this note on this parable and others, if you've ever seen Jews telling and listening to stories, this is an experience. Listeners just chime right in and jabber away about it right while the teacher is speaking. It's like interactive listening, you know, gone crazy. Okay? No way, in my opinion, uh, Jesus told these parables and everyone just sat there like in church or something. (laughs) Quietly listening. Well, this is very philosophical. Hmm, that's very thought-provoking. Shh. And very rabbinic. For this first century rabbi to to, to tease the story out with long pauses through the course of the dinner or the day in the telling. We get this mind that people show up and Jesus teaches. Then they all show up, Jesus teaches. Well, what did he do the rest of his day? First century Jewish rabbi would tease that they might walk with him for miles. You give one line at a time. Let them chew on that. Discuss it. Laugh about it. In this case, who are these crazy people? So even while they're giggling and letting those two excuses, I hey, can't believe the guy is going to go look at a field. He bought a field he hasn't seen. You know, well, you know pass the mustard. I, if they had mustard. <laughs> they had mustard seeds, but you know. And just at the perfect moment, perhaps after a pause to allow his fellow dinner guests to laugh and talk about how funny these excuses are and wonder about where this amazing storyteller was going, Jesus then lands the funniest line of the entire parable. And it's up there with the funniest things we have recorded, in my opinion, of Jesus ever saying, although there are other strong contenders. And husbands in the room today... We have all been there with what Jesus is about to say next. Sometimes humor transcends cultural differences, and this may be an example. Jesus suddenly pipes up, and still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. (laughs) We've been there, right? Husbands? Now, now, Now this one... This excuse is, is, is the only excuse with at least some merit. <laughs> right, dear? I mean, as the wives in attendance will attest. Okay, and, and in all seriousness, it, it's probably not funny today for the same reason it was funny in Jesus' day because Torah took and takes very seriously the obligations of newlyweds. Both a husband and wife are exempt from working for an entire year. Their community would support them. Their sole priority, according to Torah, was, yeah, you're not going to do anything. Your priority to your new wife, your priority to new your husband is to make the other happy. A new husband was also exempt from military service so he could focus that first year on his wife. Now, Different sermon, but let me pause there and remark on the incredible wisdom of our God. But it's nevertheless, I think, funny to Jesus' audience because 
The guy accepts the invitation to come to the banquet, obligates himself to do so, knowing he's about to get married. The engagement process is prolonged and detailed. No quickie, you know, Vegas weddings back in the day. Marriage just didn't suddenly pop up. And so this is a hilariously lame excuse. Adding to the lameness is that is the fact that a banquet invite would naturally include a man's family. Why on earth wouldn't he bring his wife along? Lame. And one more incredibly clever nuance here Jesus makes by including marriage in one of the excuses for not accepting God's invitation. The banquet in the parable is illustrating the banquet at the resurrection. And these Jews no doubt know that. Remember the blessing the one guy said that sparked Jesus to tell the parable. So they're thinking end times banquet. So those already there understood, and and they understood that, um, that, that end times banquet was to be a wedding feast of sorts with God. Remember earlier this year, the wedding nuance at Mount Sinai. I I know that was months ago, but Jews already understood in Jesus' day that that end times banquet to be a wedding feast of sorts with God, celebrating the marriage between Israel and her husband God as described by the prophets, Hosea perhaps most prominently, but also others. And so get this. The guy uses his wedding to avoid the all-time wedding banquet. Jesus is such a good teacher. This is so clever. The man uses marriage to say no to a wedding feast. And they had to be, what a nudnik. You know, and they weren't talking about Santa in the shower. The... Aren't you glad Jesus is so much funnier than me? <laughs> his, his ironic humor here is hilarious, and in that way at least makes it the lamest excuse of all, even as it is the only excuse with some merit. Only a genius teacher could do that, make it most the best and lamest excuse The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry. And everyone there thought, well, yeah, of course. The shame he was feeling at the moment and the hurt after making all of those preparations. Ouch. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. In other words... Beggars, those economically disadvantaged and disabled who were reduced to begging in order to survive. And apparently the servant went and did it because his very next verse says, Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, Go out to the roads and country lanes and make them come in so that my house will be full. House here more like home. Not a house building, but home or family. And now the invitation is for everyone, not just the poor. Go get everyone. And then this line, I tell you, not one of those men who are invited will get a taste of the banquet. 
The parable of the great banquet, another amazing story from an amazing teacher. And what is being taught here? I'll look at a few things, but let me try and summarize the primary point of this parable with a statement and a question. The primary point of this parable is God is giving a party. Are you coming? God is giving a party. Are you coming? The parable is the shadow of the great eschatological end times wedding feast between God and his people. God is giving a party. And given that the parable ultimately invites everyone, the sole factor of who will be among those who fills God's house is how they each decide to respond to the invitation. Are you coming? I love how this parable illustrates the often difficult debate and tangle of election and call and predestination and free choice. And it does it as only a parable can do. Yes, there are those who are elect and called and predestined. And their election is based on their response. (laughs) Only a parable, a shadow, can hold those two truths in the same hand. God decides who will be at his great banquet. And his decision is based on each individual's response. Exactly. It's perfect. Shadowy to human reasoning, but true and exact and perfect as only a parable could tell it. And there's a warning here too. And you'll usually find warnings in the surprises. Where there's a surprise in a parable, there's probably a key message. And the shocking message is a warning about mercy and her twin judgment. And no difference here. The surprise in this parable is the expected are absent and the unexpected are present at the feast. And the warning is no one should take attendance at the Messianic banquet banquet for granted. Oh, be careful that we don't. Unfortunately, many people seem to, or we're often tempted to at least, perhaps each one of us, I know I am. People have made a decision for God. They belong to the right group. They have the right schooling, and they participate in numerous services and charitable efforts, so now they can just get on with their lives. The Jewishness of Jesus and his audience that day comes into focus here. Like John the Baptist and the prophets before him, Jesus did not accept that election was established by birth from a Jewish mother. The intent of the parable is that those who assume that they are elect and will be present at the end time banquet may not be because attendance at the banquet is based on the response 
to the invitation of God, not the title of invited one or elect one or Jew or Gentile or little Littletonian or West Bolzian or Catholic or Protestant or Christian or predestined one. Attendance is not based on any title or convention name tag. No, attendance is based on the response to the invitation of God, period. God is giving a party. Are you coming? And one more word about the Jew-Gentile thing because there's a horrible teaching that almost always accompanies this parable even today and I want to do my part at least in correcting it for all the damage it's done. Hopefully it will be corrected one day once and for all in the church. And this teaching, easily the greatest abuse of this parable in the history of the church, including through today. And that mistake is making this parable about the much later conflict between Jew and Gentile. That's been taught, and it's still being taught, unfortunately, that the parable draws a line between Jews and Gentiles. That is, well, the first invitations are to Israel, who because of her lame excuses is now excluded, rejected from God's house. And the second two invitations are now to Gentiles, who will replace Israel in God's house. Indeed, we see here how the church replaces synagogue and how the church replaces Israel. Um, no, not so much. Here's an example of merciless allegorizing. It must come from preconceived ideas because it's not from the text. Nothing in Luke's narrative, nothing in the shadow of this parable even hints at Gentiles. Nothing. So pastors and commentators and teachers out there, stop forcing it to go there. Yes, the parable is about Israel's response to Jesus. There he is among his people, the Jews that day, Israelites, telling the parable. But it does not say that all Israel has refused the invitation and therefore is rejected. It does not. Rather, the parable is about everyone's response. All are invited. Some respond yes and others no. And whether Jew or Gentile, Russian, Prussian, American, Chinese, those in God's house are those who respond yes to his invitation. There is no justification in context, none, to make the ugly comparison anti-Semitic, to make the lame excuse people in the parable Jewish and those who all say yes, Gentiles, none. If you want to go down that road, then in fact the implication is that everyone in the parable is Jewish. It's a Jewish story being told by a Jewish rabbi to a Jewish audience in a prominent Jew's home. The beggars and those in proximity to the banquet being invited Jewish, if you want to force a label. But there's no need to force it. The parable isn't focused there. Nothing in the context suggests it. The people not at the banquet belong to one and only one group. Not a Jewish or Gentile or whatever culture group, but the one group not there are those who reject the invitation no matter what nationality or nation they called home. God is giving a party. Are you coming, whoever you are? The parable also highlights two key obstacles in accepting God's gracious invitation. The first seems obvious enough. The second is more difficult now, I think, than it was in Jesus' day, at least in terms of understanding it. Possessions and even family the parable suggests can be obstacles in accepting God's invitation. 
I think possessions is less troublesome for us to appreciate culturally. It's easy for us to see, isn't it, how, how busyness resulting from our possessions keeps us from our focus and priority of following Jesus, even of using our possessions in his service as we live our lives. But what about that family one? Doesn't God want us to prioritize our family? The answer, of course, is yes. But so much deeper, the point of this parable, because even good things, even needed possessions like a field to farm or oxen to plow it, and even family and friends and other people, even good things, all can become idols, obstacles to God if they somehow keep us from holding God as the priority of our lives. And yes, when we make God the priority, we are to love and honor and even die for our families, as well as use all we have of our possessions to serve God and others. But God is the reason that we do that, not those things in and of themselves. By the way, a family getting in the way of following Jesus is in the very next story in Luke 14, right on the heels of this parable. So I feel confident that we're on the right track with this family message here. And I don't know. I don't know exactly where stuff and family become idols rather than ways to love God. It's a tough question deserves far more than passing comments that I'm making this morning. But I do know this. Stuff, family, anything should never keep us from saying, yes, I'm coming to God's invitation to kingdom living. God is giving a party. Are you coming? You see, proclamation of the kingdom of God really isn't about Reassurance that once we make a decision for Jesus and have our salvation all set, we just merely go on our own way because we're saved. Proclamation of the kingdom of God is a challenge daily, moment by moment, to respond to the invitation of God. And that's uncomfortable. It's an uncomfortable challenge that constantly nudges us and we rationalize it away by, that must be workspace righteousness. <laughs> and then there it comes again. You know, I need, that's workspace righteousness. <laughs> it's a theological term. <laughs> it's an uncomfortable challenge by design. Because we don't naturally do that. Because even though, as Jesus says, even though the Spirit is willing, our flesh is weak. And we need that nudge, loving nudge. Please come and join me in your daily routine, God says, because I so desperately want all of every part of you all the time in reaching the world with my love. Come, for everything is ready. Where are you going? Jesus concludes the parable, I tell you, not one of those men who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. At that point, I doubt anyone 
left. Chewing became rather thoughtful at that, I imagine. That's uncomfortable. Maybe got a little quiet around the table. Guy, he always says stuff like that that just... Exactly. It's because he loves us. The proclamation of the kingdom is a challenge to respond to the invitation of God. God is throwing a party. Are you coming? And while uncomfortable... Oh boy, let's not ever lose sight of joy. Another note sounding in this parable is the sense of joy, an urgent joy, a joyous urgency that attends the kingdom. Our witness should be characterized, the church's witness should be characterized by the joy of inviting people to the banquet God has prepared, a banquet that is both present and future. Did you know you can enjoy God's banquet now, even today? You think those people who heard it when the guy came out and said in the parable, come for everything is now ready. Yeah, that made an impact then, but remember Jesus told it weeks or maybe a few months before the cross and resurrection. How much more must God's banquet be ready now? This side of the cross, an empty tomb, an indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Oh my goodness, everything is now really ready. And the joy of the celebration, of our celebration over that, of the celebration of the kingdom, well, it should be so evident that God's invitation becomes compelling simply to experiencing our joy of the Lord to those who are, who are otherwise out looking at fields or oxen or even a new wife and husband. Interesting grouping. <laughs> and to those in the streets and alleys and roads and country lanes, why are they so joyful? Our joy of celebrating God's kingdom right now should be evident and compelling right now. Arise. You know, we sing things like, whoa. I've forgotten it already. <laughs> we can participate in the great banquet, any one of us, beginning today. Did you know? We can right now party with Jesus and living out our lives on a daily basis. God is giving his party right now. Are you coming? Right now? Please come. Please. Because let me tell you something. God really knows how to party. Come, let's go. Let's, let's go together. It's been a while since I've extended God's invitation to you on his behalf. But after this parable, how can I not ask? And remember, this parable is not only about inviting first-timers to God's table, but it's also inviting those who have already accepted the invitation and need the reminder, too, that it's time to come. Everything is now ready. So here's what we'll do. Let's pray as we bow our heads in prayer. And during our prayer, I'll give you a chance, whether a first-timer or a thousandth-timer, I'll give you a chance again this morning to accept God's invitation because he's throwing a party and he wants to know if you're coming. Let's pray.
Father in heaven, we're reminded again by this parable of the amazing work that you did through Jesus on the cross. Oh my goodness, the preparation for such a time as that, that it would all line up and he would come and give his life, all to prepare the banquet for any who would accept the invitation. Father, if there's someone here for the first time, or if there's someone here who hasn't yet for the first time accepted Jesus as the Lord and Savior of their life, they haven't accepted your invitation, or maybe they haven't quite heard it that way in song and message before this morning, and perhaps you brought them here just for this purpose. I'd ask even now that you would move in and among and through all of us and in them and make them attentive to the prompting of the Holy Spirit if it's there in them to say yes and accept your gracious invitation. And I'll pause here with our heads still bowed. If there is anyone here, you've come this morning for whatever reason, but you don't know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior yet. You haven't accepted that invitation to God's great banquet, which can begin today for you. What an adventure, let me tell you. But if you've never yet made that decision to accept God's invitation, to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, would you go ahead and just slip your hand uh, in the air? We'll make you stand up or sing a song <laughs> or say anything. But if you'd like to accept God's invitation, if you want to accept it this morning, would you just go ahead and put your hand in the air long enough for me to see it? See, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. I can't see the balcony. I see hands over the room. Oh, praise God. Congratulations on accepting his invitation to the banquet. If you listen real close, you can hear the party and, and laughter of angels and the saints that just broke out in, in heaven behind the shadow. Anyone else? Any other first-timer? If you, Let me pause. Give one more ask. God's invitation is open. It's there every day, all day. God's throwing a party. Are you coming for the first time? I see a few more hands. Praise God. And now, those of you who like the first folks in the parable have already accepted God's invitation. You know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. But something resonated in you this morning about <clears throat> how the busyness of life can get in the way. How possessions or whatever can get in the way of really fully accepting God's invitation and really fully pulling up that chair and living your life moment to moment partnering with God. And you needed a reminder this morning, like I did. Come because it's already. If you'd like to recommit and hear that invitation and say yes to that second or however many umpteenth time invitation that God extends to you to come to the bank, would you slip your hands in the air? Oh my goodness, hands are up all over the room. Praise God. Praise God. Father in heaven, I thank you for those who have recommitted or have committed for the first time 
Father, if this is their church home, if they care to, or if, even if it's not, if they care to linger after the service and speak with me or, or any of our elders who will ask to come up front or any of our uh, members or anyone here who they'd like to share and talk to and if they have questions. and Father, please uh, know, please uh, put on their hearts that uh, they know that we can't wait to talk to them and we can't wait to... Uh, to share if they care to call us our church or if they do and the adventure that they've just signed up for. An amazing adventure, yes, and one with you along every step of the way. Father, we praise you and thank you for your great work uh, in the kingdom. We ask that you would find us faithful in accepting your invitation every day, every moment, today, the rest of the week, and even the rest of our lives. Thanks for reminding us again that everything is now ready. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Would you stand, please? Yes, I think a round of applause is in order for God and the work he's done in the hearts of people here. Praise God. Today's benediction from the great book of Revelation. The apostle John, probably, a John at least, is being given a tour of the eschatological end times things. And these verses in my study this week jumped out, so I thought, even though a bit longish, I'll include them as the benediction, God's good words and blessing to us this morning as we go on our way. John writes, Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah! For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give Him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. And then the angel said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the true words of God. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Go in peace. Have a great day. Praise God.